Welcome to In the Labyrinth of Death, the podcast where we explore the choices people make in disasters and whether those choices keep them alive. I'm Finn. And I'm Marina. This week, we're talking about volcanoes. So as a pseudo disclaimer, we didn't pick this topic because it's in the news. We already had it slated as part of our schedule. And then after the news came out, it just kind of coincided with the timing. So it was kind of fortuitous in that sense. Yeah, not fortuitous for people in the paths of volcanoes. But like Finn was saying, there were two volcanoes that happened in the recent news. There was one in Indonesia, which I think so far nobody has died from, which is really good. They evacuated people. And then also the one in Hawaii, which I don't think anyone's died either. So that's really good. I also want to say volcanoes are a huge topic. It's like it's even bigger than I realized when I first started researching it. So this episode's only going to scratch the surface. So if there's any volcanologist out there listening, one, you have the coolest job ever, and I really want to be your best friend. And two, let us know if we missed anything huge. And before we get into it, remember, Finn and I are not experts of any kind, and we're definitely not volcanologists. I really just want to keep saying volcanologist. It's a cool word. We just really don't want to die. We're regular people. We like researching ways to not die and talking about it. So please listen to our full disclaimer at the end of the episode and don't sue us. We're just two regular folks. All right, I'm going to get us started with the story of the Mount St. Helens volcanic eruption in 1980. It's nowhere near close to the deadliest eruption in history, but it is the deadliest in U.S. history, at least in recorded human history. So Mount St. Helens is a large, or at least it was, dramatic looking stratovolcano in Washington state. It's part of the Cascade Volcanic Arc, which is itself part of the Pacific Ring of Fire characterized by tectonic movements. Starting in March of 1980, according to History, which is like the History Channel, there were literally, quote, thousands of earthquakes and hundreds of steam explosions, end quote. This progressed to booming explosions and 6,000-foot-tall ash spews. Two craters formed in the volcano, and then the two craters merged together into one large one. So people knew shit was going to happen, they just didn't know when. On the morning of the explosion, May 18, 1980, there was a 5.1-degree earthquake that caused a massive landslide. And this massive landslide weirdly took the pressure off of the building magma, and it actually caused the volcano to explode out laterally, throwing debris hundreds of miles. Every single tree within six miles was obliterated. The explosion went out like a sonic boom and could be heard hundreds of miles away. Interestingly, though, it was dead quiet for people closer to Mount St. Helens. One couple, Venus Durgan and her boyfriend, Roald Rayton, were camping nearby and didn't hear the explosion at all. Instead, they were awakened by the evacuation alarm sounding in the next town over. So they left their tent to see what was happening, and they saw a flood of water called a lahar rushing towards them. So they picked up their tent and threw everything inside of their car. They got in the car themselves, and they discovered that the car wouldn't start. So they were forced to climb onto the roof of their car as the lahar flood waters reached them and swept them and their car downstream. The force of the floodwaters snapped the strong trees in half. They actually heard it as they were being carried downstream, huge trees being snapped. They were carried a mile downstream before being ultimately rescued by helicopter. A group of first graders was camping 20 miles away from Mount St. Helens, believing themselves to be outside the possible blast radius. There was like a zone that they decided was the most likely area to be blasted. One of the boys in that class, who was six at the time, later recalled, First, I heard three booms. Then my teacher said, look up. And I looked up, and there was a big cloud that looked like a tornado. As wet ash clumps began to fall from the sky, the parents and the teachers loaded 30 students into the cars. The explosion had occurred at 8.30 in the morning, but by the time they were in the cars, the ash had become so dense it was darker than night. Ash fell on Washington State into the next day. 
A high school student named Janet described the day as being completely dark, raining sand. It smelled like lit matches, and it happened for the rest of the day. In Seattle, the ash was ankle-deep within hours. A helicopter pilot who rescued 150 people described it like flying in a milk bottle because the ash made everything look so monotone. The ash cloud went 16 miles high and circled the entire planet multiple times before finally settling down. In total, 57 people were killed by the eruption. Most of them died from inhaling hot ash or from severe burns. Only three of the 57 people were within the zone thought to be most at risk for the blast. So why was there such a bigger blast than expected? It's because the blast estimates assumed that it would explode vertically. So imagine like a volcano just blowing its top up. But it actually exploded laterally, which made it a larger blast zone going out. So it's incredible given that that only 57 people were killed. And that's partially due to the work of volcanologists like David A. Johnston, who was actually killed that day while studying activity on the day of the eruption in the mountain. His work and the work of his colleagues actually all helped to ensure that the supposed blast zone was closed to the public entirely. And if they hadn't done that, it would have been like maybe thousands of people who had died. So I didn't do this kind of research specifically, but was that guy the photographer? There are photographs of him on that day. I don't think he was... You're talking about the picture was like looking back at the volcano and they died. There was a story that I read a while back about a photographer who was like on the slope of a volcano and he like died protecting the camera. I think I've seen that photograph. This guy was a volcanologist specifically, and he is actually the one who recorded the earthquake and then the mudslide that actually precipitated this whole thing. So he actually radioed that over to let people know that it happened. And then he passed away after that. So these were separate people. Most of the people who died on the mountain that day who were within the blast zone were the volcanologists. They were journalists. They were people like that who were actively involved with the whole situation. We know a lot more about volcanoes now than we did in 1980, and we have much better techniques for monitoring them, so we can hope that another Mount St. Helens won't happen again in our lifetimes. All right, let's get into what volcanoes are and the basics of how they work. So according to NASA, the definition of a volcano is, quote, an opening on the surface of a planet or moon that allows material warmer than its surroundings to escape from its interior. When this material escapes, it causes an eruption. An eruption can be explosive, sending material high into the sky, or it can be calmer, with gentle flows of material. End quote. As we learned in elementary school, the Earth is divided up into layers like an onion. There are two parts of the core, the inner core and the outer core. The inner core is made of liquid iron and nickel, and it's over 13,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The next layer of the core is the mantle, which is where you're going to find magma. And magma is the name of lava when it's still beneath the surface. Correct. Magma is made of liquid and semi-liquid rocks, which is crazy to think about. It's also there along with water vapor and dissolved gases like carbon dioxide and sulfur. There's also a good amount of silicon dioxide in there. So is all magma the same or is it going to vary based on local geography? It varies. There are three main kinds of magma classified by their silica content and the associated temperature. As a rule, the lower the silica, the less explosive, but the higher the temperature. This is due to the viscosity of the magma itself. When the magma is thin and runny because it has a lower silica content, that allows gases to escape more easily. When magma is thicker and more viscous because of the higher silica content, the gases can't escape easily and so you get a pressure buildup until it finally explodes. Basaltic magma is the most common magma in non-explosive eruptions, so if you see a long, slow lava flow, 
It's likely created by basaltic magma. It's pretty hot though at around 2200 degrees Fahrenheit, but it has the lowest silica content, hovering right around 50% by weight. Andesitic magma has moderate silica content and reaches temperatures from around 1470 Fahrenheit to 1830 Fahrenheit. Now the last kind is the most dangerous. Rhyolitic magma has the highest silica content, approaching 70% by weight, and only reaches temperatures of around 1400 to 1560 degrees Fahrenheit. Rhyolitic magma is what you're going to see with the big dramatic explosions. Think ash falls, pyroclastic flows, the whole thing. I think of rhyolitic as the big bad of magmas. It's the culprit behind the Pompeii explosion if you're looking for a quick visual matchup there. You don't want to be around that kind of explosion. If you're just looking at a volcano, you can make a good guess at what kind of magma is present, and therefore what kind of eruption there might be. If the volcano has gentle sloping sides, it was probably formed by thin magma that's going to result in a slow lava flow. If the volcano has steeper, higher slopes, then it was formed by more viscous magma, the kind that results in a violent and deadly explosion when it erupts. So the thing to remember is, believe an aggressive-looking volcano. A dramatically shaped volcano probably means a dramatic explosion. But the inverse isn't always true. The biggest, most dangerous volcanoes are calderas that may not have such dramatic slopes. We'll talk more about those later. Okay, so that's our grounding in magma, or rather our undergrounding, since it's below the surface of the Earth. Let's talk just a little bit about the life cycle of volcanoes. Volcanoes can exist in three states. The one you probably think of is the active state, meaning that it's erupted recently, or probably will soon. The next step down is a dormant volcano, which means that the volcano isn't likely to erupt in the near future, but it may erupt again at some point in the future. The most stable and least likely to erupt kind is an extinct volcano. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, there's about 1,300 potentially active volcanoes on Earth, excluding areas in the ocean where there's continuous belts of volcanoes. 500 of those potentially active volcanoes have erupted in our recent history. And very similar to what we talked about in the tsunami episode, many of the active volcanoes are located around the Pacific Rim, the Ring of Fire, with Hawaii being kind of a central focus point. Volcanoes are concentrated around the Pacific Rim for the same reason that tsunamis are, and that's because it's an active area for plate tectonics. Most volcanoes are directly associated with active plate tectonics. That's why you see volcanoes in the same places that you see earthquakes. Indonesia, Japan, and the U.S. are the top three countries with the most active volcanoes in recorded history, and all three also have a very large number of earthquakes. There's also a smaller number of volcanoes formed not at the edges of tectonic plates, but it's in the interior of one plate. These tend to produce magma for many, many years and are called hotspots. This is actually why there's continuous lava flow on the big island in Hawaii. So we were talking about how most of the active volcanoes are centered around the Pacific Rim. Is the same also true for the underwater volcanoes? They're technically called submarine volcanoes, and I believe so. But there's a lot that we don't know about submarine volcanoes. If their eruptions reach the surface, submarine volcanoes can form new islands. This is how Hawaii and Iceland were formed, among many others. Submarine volcanoes that have not formed surface-level land masses are called seamounts. As in mountains of the sea? Yes, I'll answer my own question and give you another one. How common are volcanic eruptions? That's a difficult question to answer since it depends on the volcano 
And we're talking about geological time frames, so the time between the eruptions. Some volcanoes have a short rest of a few years to a few hundred years. Some don't even really rest at all. And then some erupt after hundreds of thousands of years. The big one in the U.S., the Yellowstone Caldera, erupts about every 750,000 years. Aren't we overdue for that one to blow? Not really. If you go by the 750,000-year gaps, we've still got over 100,000 years before we're overdue. But that's based on the three Yellowstone eruptions that we do know about. 2.08, 1.3, and 0.631 million years ago. Experts aren't even sure that there's enough molten magma to erupt, since most of it has really just become hot, solid rock. And just as a point of clarification, when we're saying Yellowstone caldera, we're referring to a literal crater in the Earth formed by the volcano. In general, a caldera is the big, crater-like depression in the Earth created when most of a large volcano's magma chamber has been drained during an eruption. It's a literal sinkhole caused by the sudden loss of magma. Calderas can actually refill with magma again, which is what happened when Yellowstone erupted a second and third time. It currently has two resurgent domes in the caldera, which were created when magma began filling up the caldera area again following an eruption. So why don't you take us through what happens when a volcano erupts? There's two different kinds of lava when a volcano erupts. The slow kind, created by thin magma, is called a lava flow. It's typically pretty slow, no more than about 6 miles per hour even on a steep slope. Unless you're unlucky, you're unlikely to be killed by a lava flow because you should have plenty of time to get away. But lava flows can be really destructive for neighborhoods and infrastructure. Unless it hits the end of its reach, it's just going to keep going and going no matter what anybody does. So if your home or your business is in the range of the lava flow, you should prepare for the worst. Homes at high risk for lava flow are unlikely to be insurable as well, so you may lose everything that you're not able to take with you. We'll get more into what you should do if you're in danger from a lava flow in a little bit. The more immediate danger comes when you've got a violent volcanic eruption, which is when the magma is thick and there's a lot of pressure buildup due to unescaped gas. This extreme pressure creates an explosion, which causes the magma to blast out of the volcano. These magma chunks break apart into something called tephra, which is the term for any material ejected from a volcano. If it's airborne, it can also be called a pyroclast, so you may also hear that term. The tephra or pyroclast can range from ash to huge chunks of rock and lava that could be as big as a house. A pyroclastic flow is a mass of lava, rocks, and hot toxic gases. It can reach 1800 degrees Fahrenheit and speeds up to 430 miles an hour. Think of it as a big fire cloud of shit that's trying to kill you. It's extremely hot so you could be killed by the heat, or by the sheer size of something crushing you, or as the ash falls back to earth, you could actually be buried and suffocated in the ash. If you're near a source of water of any kind, even snow, you're at risk of being killed by a mud flow called a lahar which is formed when pyroclastic flow combines with the water of a river or other water source. They're very fast and can be up to 460 feet deep. If you see one coming towards you, it'll be hard to avoid because it can flow tens of meters per second. There's actually a case in recent history about lahars called the Armero Tragedy. In 1985 in Colombia, the Nevado del Ruiz volcano erupted after 69 years of laying dormant. The people in Armero and surrounding towns were taken by surprise as the pyroclastic flow melted glaciers and created four individual lahars. The lahars ended up killing 
20,000 of the 29,000 inhabitants of Armero and 3,000 people in surrounding towns. And this case is really frustrating because there was actually indication months before that eruption that an eruption could happen, but there were no evacuation orders given or any other warnings given to the town people themselves. The Armero tragedy ended up being one of the most fatal volcanic eruptions in history, or at least recent history, so don't underestimate the dangers posed by a lahar. Lahars are also what caused the flood that almost killed the Mount St. Helens couple in the beginning story as well. Alright, we've been dancing around it a little bit, so let's get into what you should do to survive a volcano. I personally feel like this is the most important part of this episode and every episode, because it's an exercise that I do myself where I go through worst case scenarios and I figure out what all my best options are. It's about making choices in this labyrinth of death. Like basically every episode that we've had so far, you should always listen to official guidelines. The U.S. Geological Survey issues warnings about the dangers of volcanoes, so you can go on their website directly at volcanoes.usgs.gov. I couldn't find a breakdown of what their levels are specifically. I, they might have it written out somewhere, but I didn't see it. But it seems pretty straightforward. Basically, they monitor a bunch of potentially active volcanoes at a few locations, and they have them from green, which is normal, to yellow, which is advisory, to orange, watch, depending on seismic activity and other factors. There may be a red level, but none we're currently alerting above an orange, so I'm not sure. And just so you know, the reporting observatories are all kind of on the west part of the U.S. and Hawaii, and that's the Alaska Volcano Observatory, California Volcano Observatory, Cascades Volcano Observatory, Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, Northern Mariana Islands Volcano Observatory, and finally the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. That was a tongue twister. While the USGS just reports on American volcanoes, other countries with active volcanoes have similar reporting systems and agencies. So if you live near an active or potentially active volcano, make sure you have a plan to get yourself, your family, and your pets out in case you ever have to evacuate. Also make sure you know a few different evacuation routes, since there could be road closures. In addition, in case you get separated and you're not able to use your cell phones because everyone's trying to make calls at the same time, make sure you and your family have a meetup place picked out so you can find each other again. In addition to the standard items you normally hear about for emergency kits, there are some volcano-specific items you should think about packing. Make sure you have good filtration masks like N95 and extra medication, especially if you have breathing problems. I have asthma, and I honestly have issues just being around regular campfires, so I fully expect to die if I'm ever around an actual volcano without a really good mask. And also as a side note, they do make N95-type masks for dogs, so if you can get one of those for your dogs, you should. But remember, they shouldn't be worn long-term because they don't actually allow dogs to pant adequately, so you can only put them on briefly, like to go outside and pee really fast. And don't lose hold of your dogs if they're wearing those masks because they could overheat really quickly. If you wear contacts, bring extra ones. And consider also packing some eye rinse solution and goggles. Make sure to also add in some kind of plastic sheeting or tarp as well as duct tape, in case you need to shelter in place to avoid extreme ash fall. You can use it to seal off doors and windows to keep the ash from getting inside of your home. If the ash fall is significant enough, it may remain and quote-unquote remobilize for months or even years. That means you may not be able to return to your home anytime soon, so again, do not leave your pets or anything else you can't be parted from. That being said, if you're evacuating and you just have to grab your family and your pets, just do that. Don't grab anything else that could be replaced later. Ideally, you'd get evacuation orders and have time to get out safely. But what happens if you're actually there when a volcano is erupting? What should you do? It depends on the volcano and how close you are to it. I'm going to actually break it down into a few different scenarios because there's a lot of stuff going on. 
So scenario one, it's a slow lava flow, you get evacuation orders, and you get out safely in time. You may have significant property loss, but as long as you get out, you should be okay. Also, just as a general rule with volcano evacuations, if you can, drive rather than walk. Not only is it faster, but it can provide you with some shelter from ash, debris, and gases. Alright, scenario two. You're in an area at risk for lahar, meaning that there's an opportunity for lava to combine with a water source to create a huge mud flow. You'll need to get to higher ground ASAP and then stay there, sheltering in place unless you're directed to evacuate by authorities. So generally, make sure to stay away from rivers and especially out of valleys. Scenario 3. You're in an area that's going to be impacted by ashfall. Now, ashfall can be light or it can be quite severe. You should shelter in place until you're told it's safe to leave. If you have plastic and tape like Finn was talking about, seal off your doors and windows, chimneys, all that stuff to try to keep the ash out of your home. Make sure you wear your mask if you have one, and if you don't, try to make one out of, like, wet cloth. And also wear your goggles if you're going outside because it can really irritate your eyes. That mask you're wearing is going to be the most important because the ash particles are small, like dust small, and they're highly abrasive and they can actually damage your lungs. On one side note here, I've spent a lot of time thinking about what you would do if you're sheltering in place with pets. Like, it's easy if you have cats because they have litter boxes and that's fine. But dogs are used to going outside to go potty, so I occasionally buy a set of puppy pee pads when I buy our dog food, just in case we need to shelter in place for a few weeks. I have this fake grass thing with a cleanable tray underneath that you can kind of put a puppy pad in, so whatever your scenario is, whether you have extended family living with you or small children or pets, just think through what your scenario is and what you need to do to stay sheltered in place completely indoors for a few weeks. You know, that's a good point. Our dogs go out at least four times a day minimum. That's a lot of potential exposure to ash. One other thing to think about is getting your cars into a garage if you've got one, or any other way that you can keep ash out of machinery if you have the time. Also, make sure that you've turned off your AC or furnace. You don't want any ventilation fans running when there's an ash fall. Don't drive anywhere either. Not only will the ash fuck up your engine, but the roads are actually going to be slick. Visibility is also going to be reduced, so just don't unless it's a literal life or death situation. And don't try to clean any ash until it's completely stopped falling, again, unless it's a life or death situation. Severe ash fall can also impact water and electricity infrastructure, so being prepared with clean water and batteries will get you a long way. I feel like generators are complicated in a situation like this. You can't run them inside because of the risk of carbon monoxide poisoning, which will kill you but you also can't run them outside while the ash is still falling. One, because you shouldn't go outside during the ash fall. And two, because it'll probably break the generator. I know they make battery-powered ones, I'm just not sure how long they last. There's also a good chance that the ash fall is going to be short enough that it wouldn't even matter if you had a generator or not, and if it lasts too long, you may actually be evacuated. So on that note, if the ash fall is significant enough, like over several hours, your roof can actually collapse under the weight of it. Don't try to get out of your house and onto the roof to clean it off. It's probably just going to make you fall and no one's going to come to help you anytime soon, so it's just a bad idea. Instead, listen to authorities on the radio or whatever emergency feeds you use to see if you'll need to evacuate. Lastly, scenario four, the worst one. You're literally on the volcano when it erupts. There may be lava flows right near you. There may be ash. There may be tephra, maybe even large tephra that could crush you. There could be avalanches of rocks or lehars. Lehars. Fucking idiot. 
sorry, Laharis, we've been cracking up over here, and I'm where it's really late. We're getting giddy. Um, okay, so it could be Laharis, and you need to get out of there ASAP. So make sure you're paying attention to any hazard or road closure signs. Honestly, it's just a really shitty place to be, especially if it's been a violent explosion. You might just straight up die at the beginning. There's not a lot of good advice out there other than don't be there and leave if you are there. Also, don't try to shelter in any caves or other confined spaces, which you might think to do if there's like huge chunks of tephra coming down on you. The toxic gases that are released by the eruption can become trapped in these confined spaces. So if you're starting to feel like you're impacted by toxic gases, just move to a different area. According to the CDC, you should be okay once you've relocated. There are some more things you can do to improve your odds of survival if you're on the volcano. If there are large tephras, you should curl up into a ball and protect your head. Obviously, if it's a supervolcano, the impacts are going to be significantly more severe. A so-called supervolcano is one that has previously erupted at a volcanic explosivity index of 8, which is the highest level possible. Let's go through the levels real quick so folks have context. These are all classified based on the volume of stuff that's ejected from the volcano. The levels range from level 0 to level 8. The lowest level is 0, of course, and is described as an effusive volcano. This is the level of the Mauna Loa volcano that's currently erupting in Hawaii. Then from effusive, we go to level 1, which is a severe volcano. Level 2 is considered an explosive volcano. From there, we move up through catastrophic at level 3 to cataclysmic at level 4. Level 5 is described as paroxysmal, which is what Mount St. Helens was in 1980, which was the deadliest volcanic eruption in U.S. history when 57 people died. Levels 6, 7, and 8 are all calderas, described as colossal, megacolossal, and apocalyptic, respectively. The Yellowstone eruption 640,000 years ago was a level 8 apocalyptic eruption for context. Now, one note on the term supervolcano here. Some experts don't actually think it's a fitting term at all, since the volcanic explosivity index we just described pertains to an individual eruption, not to the volcano itself. So, for example, even if Yellowstone erupts again, it could be a non-apocalyptic eruption. That being said, if Yellowstone did have a level 8 apocalyptic eruption, it would be horrific. Like, really, truly horrific. It's estimated that 90,000 people would die immediately. We're talking pyroclastic flows across multiple states, extreme ash falls across most of North America. We may even get a nuclear winter due to the sulfuric gas creating a haze that could partially block out the sun. I'm assuming we'd have some kind of warning before that. Yeah, I would assume so. There's a bunch of pro-volcanologists monitoring it. The chances of it blowing any given year are incredibly small, like a bunch of zeros, like 0.000014, but I wouldn't lose any sleep over it. All right, movie time. Fuck. Sorry, I've been trying not to say all right as much. I'm, I'm making myself crazy. It's very late. So we wanted to talk a little bit about movies that feature volcanoes and whether they're realistic and whether as an actual movie they're worth watching to see a depiction. Yeah, one thing that comes to mind immediately for me, even though it's not really a central point of the film, is more of a backdrop, is near the ending. And this is going to spoil the movie. So the movie I'm talking about is The Northman. So if you have not seen it, but you would like to see it, skip this for God knows how many minutes. <laughs> and then hopefully you'll land somewhere that doesn't immediately spoil Or just you. pause, go watch The Northman, and then come back and listen to the last five That's minutes That's what of this you episode. should do. You should already have watched it at this point, is what I'm saying. It's a great film. So, 
at the very end of The Northman, there's a huge climactic duel. It's been building up the entire time in the movie. And it takes place inside of the volcano, which is, number one, way, way, way too hot to even set foot inside. And number two, because the air itself, not even the ground, the air itself is so hot, you would just die upon entering it, like from your lungs. That confused me when we were watching the movie. So I also really enjoyed The Northman. I think it was visually very good. There were parts that I I found unintentionally hilarious. When people are like just screaming into the camera, there were supposed to be like super intense moments. But even like talking about toxic gases, you couldn't be in a volcano, heat aside, which would melt you. But like you couldn't be near the toxic gases of an erupting volcano. It illustrates how this is really a larger than life tale. Like mere mortals like you and I would not be able to handle any part of this. But because it's literally like Shakespearean, it's the precursor. It is a precursor to Hamlet. So these people are folkloric legends. They are not phased by things like heat, breathing in toxic fumes, that kind of stuff. So it almost is appropriate for the setting for this film because the story is larger than life. It was like an operatic ending. It was good. As a movie, it was good. As a depiction of volcanoes, probably not so much. Speaking of larger than life, I have not seen the entirety of this movie. I've only seen the volcano scenes of it. It's called Volcano. stars Tommy Lee Jones. It is amazing. Like, I don't know any other way to say it. It's the most dramatic thing I've ever seen. There's like slow flow lava. There's also like tephra landing. But like the slow flow lava like explodes like a car's tires. There's fire. There's Tommy Lee Jones and a woman. They're on like a cherry picker swinging out over the lava. They're trying to save somebody. He catches on fire laying on this like cherry picker thing on like it's intense. It's dramatic. And during the whole thing, Tommy Lee Jones is so fucking chill and understood. He's like firefighters trapped in like a truck. And he's like, hang on, I'll get you out. I'm like, the fuck is he? Is he in the same movie? Does he know what this is? It's almost like he's been there and done that. And this is just like another normal day for him. It was amazing. I don't know if the whole movie is good, but if you just go on YouTube and like look up the volcano parts, it was like fucking gold. Another movie that was honestly gold, I loved all the way through, even though it got probably terrible reviews, was Dante's Peak. So if you're looking for like a good, fun volcano disaster movie, I'd recommend that one. It's a pretty good depiction. And the movie I would not recommend at all is Pompeii. It's a doo-doo movie, honestly. I was so disappointed. I really, I love like historical stuff. I love gladiator stuff. I love disaster movies and volcanoes. I didn't even make it to the volcano until I watched it on YouTube yesterday, and that kind of sucked too. So avoid the doo-doo movies and watch Dante's Peak instead. Honestly, having a volcano in any movie elevates my enjoyment of the movie. That's all we wanted to say for movies. The last thing I want to bring up is about Pele's hair. And I bring this up because I've seen actually a few articles out about it with the Mauna Loa eruption right now. So basically, Pele's hair occurs when you have molten lava that actually starts to cool and it forms these long, thin shards of glass. So it's very, very thin. Like think about like a needle, that kind of thin. It can be anywhere from a few centimeters all the way up to two meters long. And you have to be super careful handling it because it's literally glass. So it can cut you like very dangerously. And it can also start accumulating. People actually say it accumulates in trees, up on telephone wires. So if you're out around volcanoes in that kind of a situation, just be super careful and be aware of it and don't touch it. And that is all we have for volcanoes this week. 
Don't forget that we have a website, inthelabyrinthofdeath.com. You can also reach us at inthelabyrinthofdeath on Instagram. Follow us, leave us a review if you get a chance, tell your friends. Tune in next week for a new episode of In the Labyrinth of Death. In the meantime, send us your near misses with death or volcanoes to inthelabyrinthofdeath at gmail.com. See y'all next week. This podcast is researched and presented by enthusiasts, not experts, and is for entertainment purposes only. None of the content you have heard is meant to be taken as legal, medical, financial, survival, or any other kind of advice. Please consult with actual professionals. Professionals.